This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. The Buck Sexton Show. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. I'm excited today because we are going to line up some very big lies and take proverbial baseball bats to them. We're going to smash them with sledgehammers, uh, whatever your preferred tool of destruction is for these lies. Uh, and it comes. Some of it will come courtesy of a piece that is very important and not perfect. Doesn't address everything. And I will actually give you the conservative counterpoint to it after I first lay it out. Um, but it is from a blog called Slate Star Codex, and there are it. It just goes through everything that you're hearing now. All the hysteria. All the oh my gosh, I'm crying. I'm literally crying. I'm literally shaking. Like, how am I going to live in Trump's America? Like, I'm, I'm just sad for my personal safety. You're hearing a lot of that. And I don't mean just from the journalists. You're hearing a lot of that. By the way, shouldn't it be noted that safe spaces, safety, personal safety, this is now how they silence speech. This is now the reflexive reaction you get from those on the left when they don't like something they say that it makes them unsafe they feel unsafe it's not just they feel upset right this is why you need safe spaces they say on campuses but for democrats under eight years of obama they think they had created an entire country that is a safe space and if nothing else trump has given a chuck norris style flying roundhouse kick to the face of the safe space And that in and of itself is something to celebrate. Um, This piece in Slate Star Codex, You Are Still Crying Wolf by Scott Alexander, making the rounds right now. It addresses uh, argument by argument much of the hysteria you see right now in reaction to Donald Trump's victory. And it's, it's a compilation of many things that I've said here to you before. Plus some data, he's gone into polls and pulled out the real numbers. And what you see is a case laid out, and I hope that we'll continue to make it here on this show 
and I hope that I've been making it to you now for quite some time. I believe that I've I've certainly been trying to. That the enormity of the lies and the scope and scale of the anti-Trump propaganda machine that's been out there in the media is staggering. They are mind-boggling. It's just unfathomable. You begin to see when you pull at these arguments just for a moment, when you just just grab that one thread and it all begins to come apart. You say, how is it possible that journalists, some of whom went to good schools, most of them didn't, uh, journalists that seem otherwise to care so much about politics and to be smart and know what's going on, wouldn't address these counterarguments or wouldn't address these obvious rejoinders to their accusations. But here's the initial premise of this piece. This piece is, is, is essential, and it's worth us spending a bit of time on today because it gives structure to the argument here um, that, one, they, they did everything they could to malign Trump. And understand that if they had defeated Trump, and I, I know there are plenty of you who are still very serious Trump skeptics, you know, what did I say? I'm sanguinely optimistic or sanguinely hopeful or I had some sort of pretentious phrase that I came up with on the spot. Um, if they had taken Trump down, it didn't matter. Going forward, it still would have been the, the racist Republican Party that elected Donald Trump as their nominee. So there was a lot at stake, even if you didn't really like Trump. Had Trump been defeated, don't think that that would have been a repudiation of Trumpism in the eyes of the media. No, every Republican for the for the Rubio or the Cruz or the Fiorina or whoever, the next campaign, the next nominee in 2020, it would be, well, how, how do you feel running for a party that was endorsed by the KKK before? You know, they were going to use this forever. And there's two things that come together here with the media. One is laziness because they've gotten used to just being able to deploy accusations of racism. And two is usefulness because accusations of racism are, in fact, much more useful than they should be. You'll notice that the misogyny stuff didn't quite have the same sting uh, to this day, perhaps because Trump is married and has a daughter and grandchildren and you know the notion that he somehow truly hates women uh, would seem to be well just from an electoral perspective it was not as potent a message but this piece and I, this really i feel i i am woke this morning as to the lies told uh, about trump and i'm already very aware as a side note here of the things he said that you know were either indefensible or unwise or that he but you see he didn't backtrack and now i understand the strategy or i've understood it for a while but now we see the strategy could work because the democrats pretend that if you're a republican if you're a conservative and you'll just kiss the ring and apologize and bend the knee they'll leave you alone that's not true then you've just shown that you're a servant then you've just shown that they can break you there's no benefit to be had there's no positive side to saying i'm sorry that i've transgressed your progressive uh, your progressive speech boundaries. Uh, I promise it won't happen again because then they expect you to fall in line forever and they're still going to call you a racist and a bigot and a misogynist. It doesn't it doesn't go away. You've just admitted to it. Right. Admit your crimes. They are in that sense, similar to the Inquisition. 
It's not admit your crimes and go free. It's, well, admit your crimes and we're still going to put you on the rack and then disembowel you and chop off your head because, you know, you're a Satan worshiper or whatever. Um, Trump withstood the false racism accusation machines onslaught. And the media is apoplectic about it. That's the real, that's the sort of overarching theme here. They did every, they went after him with everything they could. I don't even know what policies of his they hated. I mean, other, unless it tied into some sort of ism, unless it was, uh, or phobia, right? Xenophobia, Islamophobia, unless it was the wall or Muslims. What other, poli- did they hate his tax plan? Did they hate, they, they hated his trade deal? Because Bernie Sanders was advocating very similar things on trade. And this notion that Trump was a white lash is just belied by the facts, by the data that we have. People went out and voted for Trump in places like Pennsylvania and Wilkes. Is it Wilkes-Barre or Wilkes-Barre? Thank you. Close enough. Bar class, Wilkes-Barre. Bar class is apparently like a dance class where you, you know, ladies primarily, I think, do it. Anyway, uh, places that voted for Obama, who is black, which we all know, Places that went for Obama, in, voters specifically went for Obama in considerable numbers in 2012 and 2008, flipped to Trump this time. Did they just discover how racist they were in the last four years? No serious person could make that argument. But a lot of unserious arguments have been made, and that's the key point here. And that's what brings you back to this Slate Star Codex piece, You Are Still Crying Wolf. Even Bill Maher who on speaking about Islam sometimes warms my heart on everything else. Uh, I think he's just wrong and disingenuous. Uh, But even Bill Maher had come out and said, you know, guys, we probably made a mistake in saying that McCain was a racist and Sarah Palin was a racist and Mitt Romney was a racist. And we, we have racist accusation fatigue, finally. And the only way we were going to get there is for the media to see, keep calling him racist. Just keep saying it. Keep saying that he's racist all the time. But they're still crying wolf, to borrow from the title of this piece, by saying that Trump is racist. Some very interesting data points here. First off, there's a compilation of Trump statements from the campaign trail. Now, keep in mind, these are all official statements made publicly at his rallies for which he was not booed, for which nobody said, oh, my gosh, what happened to the Trump we know and love? These are statements that he made. I'm willing to bet that unless you were a big Trump supporter and watched a lot of his rallies, you never heard this. You certainly never heard the media report on this. He said, and this is all from this slate. We'll we'll put this on Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton, the whole piece. You should read the whole piece. And I will also address the uh, criticisms of it on the other side. But these are statements that Trump made that are pulled together here. Quote, when I am president, I will work to ensure that all of our kids are treated equally and protected equally. Every action I take, I will ask myself, does this make life better for young Americans in Baltimore, Detroit, Ferguson, who have as much a right to live out their dreams as any other child in America? Are we going to pretend that he's singling out Ferguson, Detroit, Chicago, Baltimore for any reason other than the fact that there's been riots and Uh, racial discord there and he's clearly reaching out to them with that statement okay let's continue it is my highest and greatest hope that the republican party can be the home in the future and forevermore for african-americans and the african-american vote because i will produce and i will get others to produce 
And we know for a fact it doesn't work with the Democrats and it certainly doesn't work with Hillary. Let me go on. Another quote. African-American citizens have sacrificed so much for this nation. They have fought and died in every war since the revolution. And from the pews and the picket lines, they have lifted up the conscience of our country in a long march for civil rights. Yet too many African-Americans have been left behind. Oh, I'm not done. No group in America has been more harmed by Hillary Clinton's policies than African-Americans. No group. No group. If Hillary Clinton's goal was to inflict pain on the African-American community, she could not have done a better job. It's a disgrace. Tonight, I am asking for the vote of every African-American citizen in this country who wants a better future. One more. America must reject the bigotry of Hillary Clinton, who sees community of color only as votes, not as human beings worthy of a better future. I I mean, these are the comments made by the, if you listen to the media, overt, open racist that is now the president-elect. What's the dog whistle here? What what am I missing? What's the what's the underlying message that I'm not getting? It goes on. So quotes because people say, oh, Buck, what about his thing about uh, Mexico's not sending us their best? Well, when it comes to illegals, in a lot of cases, based on a point system, which Canada has. Yeah, you could say they're not the best immigrants we could possibly be getting. That is a fact. Not in all cases, not a majority of cases, but. Right now, I I love it when left-wing sites are criticizing Trump for saying that he's going to deport two or three million criminal illegal aliens, right? And they say, oh, he's such a buffoon. There are only a million criminal illegal aliens in this country. Oh, oh, okay. I'm glad there's only a million who shouldn't be in the country in the first place and are committing crimes in the country for which they are not deported even after they are prosecuted and caught by law enforcement. But here's what Trump says about Hispanics. I employ thousands and thousands of Hispanics. I love the people. They're great workers. They're fantastic people, and they want legal immigration. I'll take jobs back from China. I'll take jobs back from Japan. The Hispanics are going to get those jobs, and they're going to love Trump. He also, this is all in this uh, piece, he has Trump standing up with a rainbow flag, the symbol of the gay rights movement, uh, with LGBTs for Trump. And it was an unscripted moment at a rally where he saw one in the crowd, and he went out and took this flag and walked up on stage and held up an L. Did you know about this? I'm a little embarrassed to tell you that I didn't know about this. I, I, or at least I didn't remember it. I didn't remember Trump standing on stage with the LGBT flag. I didn't remember it. I do remember Jake Tapper at CNN saying, oh, do you disavow? Do you disavow the KKK? Do you disavow David Duke? One of the more fascinating parts of this whole article is just what a smear that is. What nonsense that is. Total garbage. Oh, well, we're, we're going to pretend that the KKK has a has a big political influence in this country, even according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is a left wing progressive uh, site or organization that does its best to further Democrat causes and smear Republicans all the time in the low thousands active KKK members in the low that like three or four thousand, maybe. But oh, the KKK has endorsed Donald Trump. How many times have you heard that? How many? I'm sure countless times. How much of that have you seen on social media? A lot. And yet here we are. I want to know if you heard nearly as much about how the American Communist Party, which also at one point in this country was had a much broader membership, similar to the KKK in that sense, um, 
and was just co-opted in the Democratic Party largely, by the way. Yeah, the socialists were like, well, we'll just be Democrats and take over the Democratic Party. The story perhaps for another day. Do you know the American Communist Party endorsed Hillary Clinton? Did you? Uh, how many reporters went, uh, Hillary Clinton, what do you think, uh, Madam Secretary or whatever, you know, uh, verbal foot massage they could offer up. Um, Madam Secretary, you're so amazing, but you know the American Communist Party has officially endorsed you? They have thousands of members. I see their rallies. I've seen their signs. They, they by the way, are out in the open. They'll march down 6th Avenue. They'll walk past my apartment. They endorse Hillary Clinton. Did you ever hear about that? That seems so weird, doesn't it? Because, you know, we were kind of in a global struggle with communism, uh, with the threat of nuclear war looming over it. Uh, you would think that, you know, may, maybe somebody would want to, well, why did the communists go Hillary? What's up with that? Why would those who want a totalitarian revolutionary state with no property rights and no rights not determined by the collective's that are set up by this state, by a central committee, by a revolutionary committee. I mean, no, no, no discussion of that. Okay. It was all so dishonest. I am woke, to borrow from the modern parlance. I am woke when it comes to Trump. I think a lot of us are. I'll be back in a few. This is the Buck Sexton Show. On the Blaze Radio Network. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. Buck Sexton. Team, you know, right now I'm looking at some pretty awesome stuff on YHM.net. If you go and check it out, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. You've got YHM's 8540 SLK Spectre Carbine. You've got their Desert Enforcer Carbine, their 9mm KR7 Carbine. I mean, they've got fantastic complete rifles for sale on the site, all custom-made, all made by Yankee Hill Machine. They do all the work themselves. Everything done here in America, up in Massachusetts. Uh, The owners, Kevin and Chris Graham, are awesome dudes. They run a fantastic shop. It's a family business. All done here in America. Yankee Hill Machine. You should really check them out. YHM.net. They've got suppressors. They've got accessories. Whatever you need for your firearm. YHM.net. YHM.net. That is Yankee Hill Machine. I just want to let you guys also know that 
On Monday and Tuesday, I'll be down in Dallas, and I will be in for Glenn on radio 9 to 12 Eastern. So the Freedom Hut will be coming to you live from Dallas 9 to 12 Eastern. And uh, I will see what I think my show may be a sub, uh, but 9 to 12. Oh, it's Best Of? Okay. Best Of. Well, maybe I shouldn't have told everybody that, but still listen. The Best Of will be great from, it's yeah, it's six hours of straight up buck. Uh, it's going to be bucktastic. It's like a bucktopia. Uh, yes, so I'll be down in Dallas, and it's not quite cold enough in New York where the, where the trip to Dallas feels like a warm bath, but soon, soon it will be. So Monday, Tuesday, I can't believe Thanksgiving is next week. This year is coming to a close so quickly. I don't even know what to say. I'm going to be 35 at the end of the year. Is that nuts, guys? 35. When I started, I was just, just a young buck with a side part of swooping hair that was tough to even keep out of my eyes, and now here I am. I'm tired of shaving, so I leave facial hair on. Still got the side swoop, but I keep it a little bit more cut. You know, it's like baby's all grown up now. Going to be 35. I was in my 20s when I started doing media. Technically, I was in my 20s, barely. But I was in my 20s, and now here I am, going to be 35. All right. Uh, I already said YHM.net is awesome, and it is. You should go check that out. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about sanctuary cities. I'm not done, though, with this. Uh, your, this piece, you're still crying wolf about Democrats whining and crying and freaking out about how Trump is the white supremacist candidate. And uh, and I'm sick of it. And, and I think we now have to on this issue, we really do have to sort of man the ramparts uh, in this ideological battle. It's it's time to be like, you know what? Enough with the calling everyone racist and everything racist. Enough with completely irresponsible accusations of a white lash. And that's how Trump won this election. Uh People can say that, but we can call them out for being frauds and liars. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Team, we're joined by John Fear from the Center for Immigration Studies. John, I know we've only got you for a few minutes, but there's a looming showdown between Trump and the mayors of sanctuary cities across the country. How do you see this playing out? What's going to happen? Well, ultimately, the federal government is going to prevail in this. The federal government passed a law back in 1996 that state and local governments have to cooperate when it comes to sanctuary city issues and uh, issues involving illegal aliens who are committing crimes. And it's quite simple that these states... Uh, and the local governments have to allow their information that they collect in the jails to be uh, collected by ICE agents, and so that ICE can make a determination as to whether or not the people are here illegally, and from that point forward, what to do with them. And so you have a lot of sanctuary cities who are saying that they're just not going to share this information, they're not going to cooperate, or they cooperate very minimally to make life as difficult as possible for immigration agents. What are, what are the their legal reasonings for this, if any, or what are they claiming gives them the right to ignore, as you said, this previously passed federal law that says they have to cooperate? Well, they don't have much of a legal argument. It's more of an emotional or you know, political argument where they are saying that they view it as their role to shield illegal immigrants from law enforcement. And there are other laws that come into play there as well. We have anti-harboring laws that many of these cities might be violating. And 
unfortunately, they've gotten away with it for quite some time because we've had multiple administrations that aren't that interested in enforcing our immigration laws, aren't that worried about sanctuary cities. And the policy for the past eight years in particular has largely largely been that the government's going, the federal government's going to ignore most illegal immigrants unless or until they commit some sort of violent crime. And then at that point, they become deportable. And at that point, the sanctuary cities are generally open to getting them out of the community. But my argument is that violence against Americans should not be a prerequisite prerequisite for immigration enforcement. How many illegal alien criminals are currently at large in the country? Do you have an estimate? Do you have a sense of that number? The Center for Immigration Studies uh, pulled together the data on this one? Uh, Yeah. Criminal statutes or criminal statistics are always somewhat difficult, but we do know there's around... Two million or so uh, immigrants who have committed staggering. Uh, yeah, staggering. Two million or so who have committed uh, various crimes. There is another uh, almost a million people who have been ordered deported who apparently have not left the country. And then, of course, there are all sorts of crimes that your average non-violent illegal immigrant is committing. Think about the identity theft, the identity fraud, the social security fraud. These are things that create real victims. If you've ever been a victim of identity theft or know someone who has, you know it's a horrific, difficult process to go through. And we have about maybe 7 or 8 million illegal immigrants who are holding jobs right now. Uh, it's believed that somewhere around half of them are working under the table, so you know, there's tax violations right there. But the other half are working on the books. It's just that they're using phony social security numbers or numbers that actually belong to American citizens. There's all sorts of criminal activity right there that's not being prosecuted. So part of the problem is identifying you know, who is a criminal alien, but then the other part of the problem is recognizing that there are plenty of illegal immigrants who are simply not being prosecuted for the crimes, but they, they are criminals. One last question for you, then we'll let you, we'll let you jet. Uh, wanted to know, what can the Trump administration do to bring these cities into the fold or to bring these mayors to heel and show them that, you know, sorry, you don't get to decide what the law is? I think at the outset, they really have to politically uh, drive home the message that hasn't been driven home for the past eight-plus years, and that is that this is the law. This is federal law. This is what you're violating, and we are going to come after you and potentially sue you if you're unwilling to comply. You'll see a lot of these cities fold just, just from that, uh, but there is a way to also say, look, we're not going to be providing you funding for certain uh, certain types of block grants, certain types of – there's all sorts of grants. Ma- a lot of major police departments, I know this because I work for one, get a, t- get a lot of federal funds, for example. They get SCAP funding, which is like criminal alien funding, to actually help uh, them recoup the costs of housing illegal aliens. Um, and there are sanctuary cities that get that money. Um, and so you would think that if the federal government says, look, we're not providing you this, this funding anymore unless you actually cooperate with us, I think that will be enough to get these cities to comply. John Fear is from the Center for Immigration Studies. John, appreciate you making time today in the schedule. Great to have you. Hey, thank you. Uh, there, I mean, the Democrats, just so we understand, are opposed to deporting criminal illegal aliens or or at least are saying that this is going to break up families or it's a terrible roundup or the long dark night of fascism is upon us okay so so we have to keep criminals that aren't u.s citizens in this country Wh- whose idea is that i i know people who are 
you know, uh, highly educated foreigners who come here on visas and they've got to play all of these games, man. Oh, all this money to immigration lawyers got to go back to their home country, got to go back to the U.S. embassy there, got to get their visa renewed, got to get their company to sponsor them, can't leave their job. You know, they're, they're jumping through all these hoops and they're paying you know, Medicare and uh, Medicaid taxes, and, and I mean, they're paying income, full income taxes. They're not even citizens, and they're contributing to the economy. And if they overstay a visa or something, they're barred from the country for, I forget what it is, two years or five years or something, but they're barred from the country for a while, for years. They got to go back, they got to come here, they got to go there, they got to have lawyers, the whole thing. Meanwhile, you know, if you're an MS-13 gang member who's only been, you know, accused of, or only been convicted of one sexual assault, San Francisco wants to wants you to know that you can stay. You're welcome there. Chicago wants you to know that you should not live in fear, MS-13 gang member who is not a U.S. citizen. No one's sending you back to Honduras. Really? Really? Yes, really. This is what the Democrats believe. This is your new Democratic Party. This is why I'm like, we got to beat Hillary. All right. Whatever it is, we got to beat Hillary. I'm going to get into some of the stuff, by the way, in the next hour and what tr- some of the things Trump is saying. And I'm kind of like, oh, word? For real? Yes. For real. Trump is doing some good stuff. <laughs> yeah, he's doing some good stuff. Or saying he's going to do some good stuff. He's not even president yet. I, 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 Obama, by the way, I think for the first time in eight years is like not the, is, is really. Uh, not the center of attention as president, right? I mean, he's, yeah, I know we've had the election and it's been Trump and Hillary going on all the time, but people are already speaking about Trump like he is the president. I'm sure Obama does not like that. Um, so, uh, but on this on this sanctuary city issue, done. This has got to be done. No, no, more, no more of this. No more localities for the purposes, of course, of politics. That are getting money from you and me, by the way, because as we just talked about, they're getting federal tax dollars in some cases specifically to deal with their illegal alien problems. Never mind the fact of all the money that goes into the school systems and all the money that goes into different welfare programs and all this other stuff that is from the federal till. I mean, this is coming from the D.C. piggy bank that you and I are being forced. You know, they're flipping us upside down and emptying out our pockets into these little piggy banks. And then those coins are getting sent out all over the country, including to illegal immigrants. Emergency room visits never. How do you bill? How do you bill an illegal that you've given care to in the emergency room who isn't supposed to be here, doesn't have a Social Security number, gives you a fake name? I mean, you don't. So their answer to it is, well, let's put them on Obamacare. Oh, that's great. Now let's make it official that you're paying for them. That makes it better. No, no more. No more. It's There is a principle here as well. It's not even just the dollars and cents, although that matters. And the principle is, if you and I have to obey U.S. federal law, including all the crazy laws that are on the books right now, which are just, just unethical and wrong, in terms of the severity of the punishments and the absence of mens rea protection. By the way, I'm hoping Rand Paul will get Donald Trump's ear. And there should be. If it's good enough for Hillary Clinton, it's good enough for all the rest of us, right? Basic mens rea protection for all federal law. If a reasonable person would not think they were committing a crime and did not intend to commit a crime, it is an affirmative defense for any federal charge. That's all. That that should be the past that. And add a little clause absent recklessness or you know but that's why it's a basic if, if a reasonable person would not think and did not intend to that it is an affirmative defense means that you might have to go to court and prove that but if you prove that you're good 
this is not even an issue of, oh, well, why isn't this in U.S. law now? I mean, this goes back to the very basis of all. This goes back to Socrates and Plato and virtue and whether a person can be culpable or not. Okay. I just wanted to get in some of that uh, sanctuary city stuff because it just drives me insane that this is even... I mean, I'm not going to say that I'm standing here. I'm like literally crying. I'm like literally shaking over sanctuary cities. Like, I'm going to leave the country because of sanctuary cities. It's like so upsetting. Oh my gosh. No, I don't think so. Not planning on doing any of that. You have localities, municipal. Imagine for just a moment if I'll just take a crazy example New York City, which is effectively a gun free zone meaning that only criminals can have guns here and the police. Um, you can own a firearm here. It is onerous. It is difficult. It is expensive. And you also have to cede other rights in order to have a firearm on your premise, you know, in your premises where you live. Uh, and I refuse to do it. And I refuse to go through the process. And it's just bull. It's just bull crap. But imagine if New York City was like, you know what? We just think the Second Amendment covers automatic weapons. And so we're just going to allow people to buy automatic weapons here. And like, sorry, feds, like stay away. Uh, what happens then? You, you can't have, and people will say, well, Buck, look at the marijuana issue. Yeah, uh, that's that's a tenuous situation there. The federal uh, the federal government needs to either decriminalize or, you know, we need to all get on the same page here because it is a moral question. It is unethical for somebody to be locked up in Idaho for, you know, 20 years for what is completely legal now or is treated as legal in Colorado. That is unethical. Under the same, you know, federal law. How does that work? Idaho and Colorado don't get to have their own federal laws. They they have to exist under the federal laws that govern all the other 50 states, 48 states. You know what I mean? I've been to uh, 57 states. Um, all right. 888-900-3393. We'll be right back. Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. the truth. This is Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Speaking of pearl clutching and sanctimony out there over Trump's victory, now we're being told that international students are worried about attending college in Trump's America. I have to watch. You know, there's so many fun accents I can do here. But uh, Oh, is it uh, safe to attend a university in Trump's America? I'm so scared. Oh, no. I just, where will I get my baguette in the morning in Trump's America? It's like, you know what, dude, or do that, whatever, you, you know, whichever we're talking about. Uh, you don't want to come to University of America because of who you like the president. Don't. We don't need you. This is a uh, actually a, a pet peeve of mine. This notion that somehow we shouldn't give preference in universities to American students and American citizens over foreign students. Uh, this bothers me because every major university, by the way, gets a tremendous amount of I shouldn't say tremendous amount, but every major university gets um, federal funds for research grants and such, and also, and such, sorry, no and such, uh, but also uh, without Pell Grants and without federally subsidized or federally backed 
loans for students. They couldn't even begin to go to a lot of these schools anyway. So these schools get a lot of federal help in one way or another. And yet you go into a lot of classes, a lot of MBA classes, and uh, you see international students from all over the world. Um, this is we should be educating the next generation of Americans first and foremost. That's not a oh Buck. That's so no. It's of all ethnicities and creeds and races and backgrounds and religion. Americans, Americans should get preference. These are American universities. Americans should get preference. That doesn't mean that we can't take any foreign students. But now we're supposed to be upset because students in I'm trying to think of where they what they name here. Um, they have students from. I, don't know, I think the ones from India, um, and they're all worried because they don't they don't know is it safe is the question is it safe is Trump's America safe? Uh, this is people have read all this stuff online, and the wolf crying has reached around the world, and now people wonder why would it not be safe? The the, the worst hate crimes that I've seen for the surgeon Trump hate crimes involve people saying. Allegedly, anecdotally, usually on Facebook, something mean to somebody somewhere. Meanwhile, here in New York City, a Trump supporter was straight up punched in the face for wearing a Trump hat. If uh, I get the story right there, I'll check on that in the break. But I know there was an assault of somebody for wearing Trump gear. So if I walk down the street with America, make America great again hat on, which I don't because I don't have one. But if I did and you know what, maybe one day I will. Depends. We'll see how he does. We'll see how he does. Someone's going to take a swing at me. Really? Well, they best not miss. That doesn't get as much attention, though. They don't really care about that. Trump supporters being attacked. And, of course, Trump supporters have been uh, verbally attacked for a long time. I know a lot of Trump supporters said crazy stuff to other Republicans who wouldn't get in line, too, by all means. And I was, you know, I, I received my fair share of that nastiness. But I'm willing to let bygones be bygones on the word stuff. Uh, but yeah, international students, back to our initial piece here, New York Times. Uh, is it safe? Is it safe? Is it safe to be in America now that Trump won? Yeah, it's safe. All right? You want to come here? Pay full tuition. Shut your mouth. It's ridiculous. Uh, this is also, I mean, the universities take this very global, you know, I was going to say globalist. The globalist universities, Harvard. Uh, the universities take this uh, very cosmopolitanist. There we go view that they should be educating the world's elite and you know what american universities you could do with a little bit of let's give americans priority uh more so than they currently do hour two coming up be right back the buck sexton show only on the blaze radio network Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. All right, team, welcome back to the Freedom Hut. David Harsanyi is with us now. He's a senior editor at The Federalist. His latest piece Donald Trump ate some steak and the media had a cow about it. Moo. What's up, David? Not much. I mean, a lot, actually. <laughs> yeah, a lot, a lot going on. Very much so. Uh, so t- tell us about the tell us about Steak Gate, because now we have to put gate after everything that's a temporary scandal. Right. Well, as 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 your listeners probably know, um, 
Donald Trump snuck away from the protective press pool to grab a steak at 21 or a hamburger. And uh, everyone went nuts. I mean, I can't even, I couldn't even collect all the pieces that, that, that sort of these overwrought pieces about how awful it was that he had snuck around the press and how important it was for our liberties and the First Amendment. The problem, of course, is, as usual, and I'm sure we'll be doing this quite often, Barack Obama did the same exact thing, and at the time, no one cared at all about it. Why do you think this double standard exists, Mr. Harsanyi? <laughs> um, I actually, I, you know, listen, I think it exists because uh, most of the press is liberal, but I actually think that uh, it's fine uh, for them to go after Donald Trump on this. It's not fine that they let Obama get away with everything. I mean, he was in Hawaii. He snuck away from the press pool with his daughters to go watch some dolphins or whatever. No one cared. He snuck away at a G20, uh, G20 meeting in Canada to play some golf. And there was a little bit of pushback, but nothing like this. And I think uh, we should be prepared for Donald Trump, who I am not a huge fan of, to be treated truly unfairly, as he might say, by the press. Yeah, he's been saying it all along, and, and I have to say, since he's become president, that has definitely been the case, whether people want to agree with it during the primary and uh, and the general election or not. They are, they're in total freakout mode about him. I, mean, this is, I was just talking before the break, David, about the New York Times writing a piece on how international students are worried about their safety if they attend universities in America. I don't even know. I can't even connect the dots there. They'll be unsafe because of what? Like what, 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 they, they think that there's going to be anarchy in the streets and we're going to turn into some sort of dystopian country where we end up eating each other because it's what? What's the problem? That's what they make. I mean, that's what liberals have ginned up this moral panic about um, violence in the street against all kinds of minorities. A lot of these stories they were they were sort of sending around turned out to be hoaxes and fakes. And I'm sorry if international students don't want to come here, then they can stay where they are. I mean, I'd like I, I want people to feel that they're safe here and free here. And I think they are. Uh, but, you know, every, you know, I think that no matter which Republican would have won, there would have been a freak out. Obviously, I think it's a little bit more with Donald Trump, but uh, it is disconcerting how crazy everyone's gotten over his election. I mean, it, it, it's amazing that people can't understand that government is more than the president, that nothing's going to happen to them. Uh, that, you know, I guess maybe because they felt like Obama was sort of that sort of uh, authoritarian, I guess they feel like everyone could back that way. I think it's interesting that the and, I, and this was I talked about this a little bit in the first hour of the show today, the language on campuses about safe spaces and how people actually I think uh, well, I think Ben Shapiro was giving a speech just yesterday. And I, from what I saw on Twitter, someone stood up and yelled, you know, I'm not safe or this makes me feel unsafe or something. And, and this has become the sort of ultimate heckler's veto on campus, right? That just the mere speech that one could give or the, the words that one can say create a, create physical insecurity, feelings of physical insecurity, like I'm about to be attacked. It really equates speech you don't like with a, with a form of assault. Um, and now we see that this is actually what a lot of people are saying. When I say a lot, I mean, this is a widespread meme. This is like trending on Twitter and Facebook and such about Donald Trump. People are saying that they, th you know, whether it's the LBGT community or uh, different minority groups, they're saying, I don't feel safe. And I always want to ask, you may not like his problem. Why do you feel unsafe? What about him makes you unsafe? I, it's a great question. I don't know. I mean, I think... 
Listen, in my own kids' school district, I have gotten two emails from the superintendent saying there are counselors available for children, children in high school and in junior high school or middle school who feel unsafe about the election or have concerns about the election. And it, it, it's like we, we're becoming – I mean – we used to care, and I think everyone at least pretended to care about free expression. And to limit free expression to things that are only safe means we have no free expression. So uh, I wish there were a pushback against this, and there is, I guess, a little bit from the left, because it's, it's a dangerous way to view freedom. In fact, it is unfree. And, you know, when I was in college, I was sort of and I'm not saying I was better than anyone else, but I was sort of open to wild ideas or I wanted to hear new ideas. And today it just doesn't seem like most kids are that way. And maybe my impression's wrong, but it just seems like, a, 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 you know, these people are going to be adults and voting soon. And it really sort of worries me that they'll be in charge of my future. Right. There seems to have been a change from not liking something to being able to designate it as 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 threatening. Um, and this has it always starts on the campuses and, as you said, at the schools, and then it sort of infects the broader society. I, I think we're already there. Uh, and you have people who otherwise seem like uh, maybe not reasonable, but functioning adults who are in some cases, you know, actors and such uh, very successful in their fields. And they are they are being hysterical in the in the not funny sense. They're being hysterical in the sense of there is really this tremendous anxiety as to what's going to happen to them. I saw a march of thousands of people down the street uh, right next to where I live, David, and there were people crying out about how that that was the main thing about how they don't feel safe anymore. I, I, and it brings me back to, well, what would what would make these delicate snowflakes all feel safe? What, What do we need to do for them? You live in New York, right? Yeah. So let me just say, when I, I grew up in New York, right? So when I was a young, I think there were, what, like 2,500 murders in, that, you know, in New York City every yeah, year. Yeah, it was unsafe. <laughs> yeah, it was very unsafe, um, which was kind of um, an adventure sometimes and fun in a weird, kind of demented way, I guess. But it is extremely safe now, and it's much safer because there's law and there's order. And um it's it's like a new hate crime statistic thing came out the other day from the FBI that listed all the hate crimes and all the headlines said there's a 60 percent spike in crimes against Muslims and this and that. When it's boiled down, there were two, out of a nation of 300 million people, there were 257 hate crimes against Muslims in the entire country. And of that, only a small, small amount were violent crimes, some vandalism. Obviously, none of this is OK. Actually, I think it tells us that we are one of the most tolerant places in the world, considering that all the kinds of people who live together here. This is completely unique in history. It's never happened anywhere else. Even today, it never happens anywhere. We are tolerant. And uh, it's very hard for the left to come to grasp with that because it kind of undermines their whole, at least in the recent years, their whole idea that we are this racist, sexist nation. I, I just don't buy it. Well, there's so. a very it's it's a very important silencing tool as well because if they can create the perception that certain views are tied to violent acts and to assaults, it's easier than to say. As my understanding is, BuzzFeed takes this position, right? That, that on some issues there's no two sides, and mm-hmm. even on political issues, on issues where there clearly are two sides. Uh, but this is a means of shutting down the discussion entirely because you say that. Uh, but this comes up often, and, and I've had to deal with this over at CNN after terrorist attacks when speaking about 
the roots of jihadism in Islam openly, it, it, well, that, that this means that people are going to go burn down a mosque and they're going to hurt people and it's on you. And right. this has become kind of a default setting for the left. And on this, on the Trump victory, some of the stuff they're pointing, I mean, it's just pathetic. I mean, it's, it's, you know, Southern Poverty Law Center at its site has, you know, a woman was walking down the street and somebody yelled, you know, get out of here, you know, you effing foreigner or something. And okay, I mean, that, that's the, the, we're all, this is the dark night of terror now. I mean, you got to be kidding me. Again, not that that's okay, but like this is a national crisis. And to compare that to like Nazi Germany and stuff, which is often done, I mean, it's just so insulting. But, you know, here's the thing. I think the argument has gone from debating a point to just debating your intention. So they can see what your real intentions are no matter what you say. You are a hater. So if I say to – if I argue with a woman on Twitter, let's say she will say I'm – mansplaining things to her if i argue with someone who is mansplainer you yeah i'm a white uh you know i have white uh what's it called um white privilege privilege right so like my what i'm saying doesn't matter who i am only matters and it's it really undermines discourse and debate in this country and it is essentially a tool now for most of the left i mean that you know when you read these pieces it's all about every voter uh, who, who was for Donald Trump, you know, is now considered part of white supremacy, a racist. It is, it's really destructive because I feel like there's no debate anymore, really. They've stopped debating and they just are uh, accusing you of being a hater. And where do you go from there? I'm not even sure how you can answer something like that. You can't prove you're not. Uh, so, you know, the debate is over. Do you think that there, there was a, a sense that set in among the left that with eight years of Obama and Hillary sort of on on deck waiting to take over that it was just going to be you know clear co2 free progressive skies for the foreseeable future and that that's and, and that this is part of the shock that has set in for all of them well i think there's always this notion when you're in charge that you're going to be in charge forever uh you know i think carl rove had said once you know the the permanent ma- ruling majority or something like that i I think I was shocked at Donald Trump once. So I can't imagine what uh, the media was. But, yeah, I think they're shocked. I think they thought that this that it had been over, that they were going to run the Supreme Court um, and that uh, conservatism was essentially dead. Now, I'm not sure how great conservatism is going to be doing moving forward, but things have drastically changed. So I think they're still sort of coming to terms. There, you know, one, one day I have to write a column about all like the stages that people go through after losing an election, but we're, they're still in the conspiracy theory stage about why they lost it. I think one, some of them will snap out of it and try to come up with a better plan. And there's supposed to be the data, the science, the well, the data and science people, according to what they say about themselves. You know, they can they can explain anything to you if you give them enough time. Uh, and you know, Nate Silver is revered as like a, as like a god of numbers. Meanwhile, the the data shows that people that voted for Obama actually came out this time and at least areas that went for Obama, assuming similar voters, went out and voted for Trump this go around. That that seems to indicate that the whole, oh, it was all racism and, and it was a backlash from whites is wildly overplayed in the media's mind. I mean, these are people who voted for Obama who are now voting sure. for Trump in some cases. I, I think the problem is we, we put maybe – first of all, I think – Social science, science should always be in quotation marks. Yeah, there's no but, such thing as social science, and that's I'm a political science major from college, so I, I like saying that. Even even regression analysis, David, doesn't change that fact. We yeah right. We 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 can use it to help us try to understand the world. I think that that's true, but it's not a definitive science. There's no answer for why people win or lose elections, and 
I think there are a million reasons why people vote the way they do, not one or two. Everyone runs after an election to, to point to it and say, this proves everything I thought before this election even happens. I mean, I think that lots of people had different reasons to vote. I mean, I think a driving factor here, if you look at a lot of these races, Republicans, sort of traditional conservative types like Marco Rubio or McCain, people who weren't even big Trump guys at all, outran Trump. So I think this is part of a larger backlash against what progressives have done during the Obama administration generally. I mean, but there are a million other reasons as well, probably. And I don't think we can quantify them or point a finger at them. But clearly, racism was not the overriding reason. Because then, as you said, all these counties that went for Obama and turned would not have. And uh, I think, I forget exactly, but I think Trump did better with minority. Most He did. He did better with blacks and Hispanics than Romney did. Right. There's got to be a reason for that. So, right. You know. And well, meanwhile, the, the biggest objection the left has to Trump is what a racist he is. And he did better among racial minority groups than the previous Republican candidate, I think, than McCain, too, but definitely than Romney. Right. And, and listen, I think that there are some troublesome voices that latched on to Donald Trump. And I think Donald Trump says a lot of dumb things sometimes. But overall, I think just saying he's a racist and calling Steve Bannon an anti-Semite because his wife in divorce proceedings said he was is a bit much and, and, you know, and sort of outside the sort of thing that real news organizations should be reporting in the way that they do. I don't know that any of that's true. And I think that because they report things that way, people no longer trust them at all. And, uh, you know, that's another one of the problems, I think, that's going on. I also was expecting, and I'll just ask you this, and then I'll, I know you've got other things you've got you to do, David, but uh, having fun chatting with you, so we've gone a little long here. I also feel like after the, the all-out character assassination campaign against Trump, based on racism, misogyny, xenophobia, Islamophobia, all that stuff, after that failed, maybe the media would sort of take a time out before they went, no, that's they're, they're now that's Bannon, now that's this advisor, it's that advisor. They're just running that playbook on everyone around Trump. I don't think they've really gotten the memo yet that we are perhaps becoming numb and maybe even better than that, becoming a little bit more immune to haphazard charges of racism, which would be a great thing. Oh, I think so. I, I mean, I, I noticed this a little bit, and I'm sort of mad at myself for not seeing it, the bigger picture, but I noticed this last midterm where a lot of the war on women stuff didn't really work anymore. Uh, Cory Gardner, for instance, in Colorado, who was senator now, was the, the entire thrust of the campaign against him was uh, the war on women stuff, and people didn't buy it. And that's a, that's a democratic state, basically. So um, I think that people are becoming immune to that and numb to it. I think it maybe helps their side, you know, maybe feel better about what they're doing but i don't think independents fall for it and i definitely don't think and i think when you call everyone a racist no one is a racist in the sense that if you say everyone who voted for trump is a racist then a lot of people don't even feel threatened by that anymore because they're part of this giant group that they know most people aren't racist and they don't they they don't care if you call them that anymore so yeah i think i think you're definitely right about that and uh, but it doesn't seem like they've changed. I mean, that's their main argument post-election. So I don't know where that leaves them or where that leaves us as a country. Yeah. I mean, I voted for Trump, and I love everybody. David Harsanyi <laughs> is a senior editor at The Federalist. You can follow him at David Harsanyi on Twitter and check out his pieces on thefederalist.com. David, great to have you, sir. Talk to you soon. Always fun. Thanks. Uh, team, phone lines are open, 888-900-3393. What do you think? Have they cried wolf too many times? Back in a few. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network.
The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. You ever considered a silencer for your firearm team? I think you should. The best place to go is silencershop.com. They have the absolute best buying experience you can get, period. They have a friendly and knowledgeable staff. They're always available to help or answer questions, and customers can trust Silencer Shop to handle the process quickly and correctly. And when it comes to doing the paperwork right for your silencer, silencershop.com submitted more than 60,000 forms to the ATF in 2015. They know what they're doing, and they've got great service as well. They've got the best selection of products from the top brands, and they try to keep all the most popular brands in stock at all times. That means you can get what you want even faster. Silencer is a really cool accessory to have for your firearm. I think you should check it out. So go to silencershop.com, silencershop.com. Help make the world a quieter place. Uh, speaking of firearms and silencers and such, some of you may have seen that Trump is talking about something that's going to get some of you a little excited, I think. National concealed carry reciprocity. And this is one of the things that I've seen uh, tweeted out, shared from the campaign, and or uh, that Trump has said. And as we look at this, I think we have to we have to be here. It's from the Washington Post. Trump plan calls for nationwide concealed carry and an end to gun bans. This is uh, WashingtonPost.com yesterday. Republican presidential frontrunner Donald Trump, who said he has a concealed carry permit, called for the expansion of gun rights Friday, including making those permits applicable nationwide. In a position paper published on his website Friday afternoon, Trump called the elimination of gun and magazine bans, labeling them a total failure. That's right. When it comes to Second Amendment, we're going to start winning and we're going to win so much we're going to get tired of winning. He says law abiding law abiding people should be allowed to own the firearm of their choice. The government has no business dictating what type of firearms good, honest people are allowed to own. And uh, he just goes on and on. He says. Uh, that it should be like driver's licenses. If we can do that for drive about concealed carry permits, if we can do that for driving, which is a privilege, not a right, then surely we can do that for concealed carry, which is a right, not a privilege. Those of you who support Second Amendment, I mean, this is right. Happy? Yes, good. I have to. Th- I have to. Would think so. No more. I'm going to get locked up because I missed the exit on the turnpike, and I have a concealed carry permit for Pennsylvania, but not you know New Jersey. Uh, no more of that. Now your concealed carry permit would be receiving reciprocity nationwide, everybody. Ooh, Buck likey. More coming. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Listening to the Buck Sexton Show only on the Blaze Radio Network. See, we're joined now by Ovik Roy. He is Forbes opinion editor. He's got a piece up on Trump and Obamacare and a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, thank you for calling in, Ovik. Good to talk to you. Hey, buddy. How are you? Good, good. Uh, let's talk about some health care. Uh, Donald Trump is this, right. Uh, Donald Trump is is right. This is on Forbes.com. Everyone should check it out. You can repeal Obamacare and still cover everyone with pre-existing conditions. Ovik, how does that happen? Yeah, so it's, you know, the, the, the left has this idea and the mainstream media has this idea that um, if you want to help people with pre-existing conditions, the only way to do it is Obamacare or single payer. There's no other way to do it. You know, if you don't, if you don't do it that way, it can't be done. And that's totally not true. It's actually 
Pretty simple. We spend, the government spends every year, federal, state, and local, about $1.5 trillion subsidizing health care for Americans. It's very easy to take a small slice of that money and use it to make sure that people who have pre-existing conditions and can't get coverage get the financial assistance they need to afford coverage without messing up the system for everybody else. And they do this how? Well, if you think about it this way, so if we had a free market for health insurance, and we don't today, but let's say we did, the way insurance would work, like it does in every other industry, is you charge more money to riskier people and less money to low-risk people. Think about car insurance, right? If you're the kind of person who's had five drunk driving accidents in the last five years, your car insurance is going to cost more than someone who has a perfect driving record. Similarly, if you're the kind of person who's had five heart attacks in the last five years and somehow managed to live through that, your health insurance is probably going to be more than someone who's been in perfect health. And so what the left tries to do is say, well, that's unfair. You shouldn't charge people who have had a lot of heart attacks more for health insurance than people who are perfectly healthy. The problem is if you make everyone charge, if you charge everyone the same, you make health insurance a lot more expensive for the young and healthy people, the people who stayed out of the hospital, and they drop out of the market because health insurance is not a good deal for them if they have to pay a lot more for it. So that's not the way to do it. That's what Obamacare does. Obamacare says let's redistribute the wealth through the health care system by overcharging younger and healthier people for their health insurance. That's not the way to do it. Leave them alone. Let younger and healthy people uh, pay for insurance that's affordable and financially makes sense for them, but for the people who are sick, who are also low income, who, you know, if, if you're a millionaire, you don't need the help. But if you're, if you're poor and your health insurance is too expensive, then you can provide tax credits uh, to help those people shop for coverage that is useful for them without messing up the system for anyone else. It's a more targeted approach. Do you think that Trump is going to repeal Obamacare? I mean, can this be done? Absolutely. Well, so the, the key thing to understand is, you can't repeal all of Obamacare, every single word, as Ted Cruz liked to say, unless you have 60 votes in the Senate to overcome a filibuster. Now, you could get rid of the filibuster, but if you don't get rid of the filibuster, it takes 60 votes to repeal all of Obamacare. Now, short of that, what you can do is you can use the reconciliation process to repeal big chunks of Obamacare. The key thing with the reconciliation process, as some of your listeners will know, is that it can only be used for stuff that's germane to the deficit. So things that have to do with federal spending, things, have, things that have to do with taxes, and things that have to do with the deficit and the budget. And this is how so, they rammed Obamacare through in the first place, it should be noted. In, in part, right? So remember that actually there was a brief window of time after the Scott Brown, or before the Scott Brown election in Massachusetts where Democrats did control 60 seats in the Senate. So a big chunk, the vast majority of Obamacare was passed with 60 votes in the Senate. Then there was a small bit at the end that they passed through reconciliation. But the vast majority of Obamacare was passed, uh, it overcame a filibuster. And that's really important because, in other words, for us to reverse that, you'd also have to overcome a filibuster. So you you can repeal. The key thing is you can totally defund Obamacare with the majority vote. You can get rid of the Medicaid expansion. You can get rid of the insurance subsidies, et cetera. What you can't get rid of by the reconciliation process are the regulations. 
the regulations that force insurers to cover maternity coverage and all the other things that, that Obamacare does to make your premium so high. So all the things when we talk about Obamacare rate shock and your premiums going up, all that is driven by the regulations in Obamacare, not the taxes and subsidies. So that part does require 60 votes in the Senate. But here's how it works. And I talk about this in the Forbes article you mentioned at the open. You repeal by a reconciliation the funding, the taxes and the spending in Obamacare on, in the first 100 days of the Trump administration. Then you, what you do is you phase that out. You say, okay, we're going we're gonna to continue those funding streams for two years and then take that two-year time frame to replace Obamacare with something that uh, is more on the conservative side of things. And then when you hash that out and you figure it out, you pass that with 60 votes. How do you get the 60 votes? Because the Democrats know that if they don't play ball, the whole thing goes away. And rather than allowing the whole thing to go away, they'll need to play ball and sign on to something that's more constructive and more market-oriented. How, what is an Obamacare plan like right now? If you get a gold plan in New York, do you, I mean, right. do you have pretty decent health care coverage if you, are, if you buy a plan as an individual off the exchange and you go for the best that you can get, or is it still crappy? Well, it's, it's pr- still crappy. I will say New York is, is one of the few places where Obamacare is not it, – it, on the relative scale, New York State is uh, – and New York City in particular are places where Obamacare is working better. And why is that? Because prior to Obamacare being the law of the land – New York State had a very similar system. In New York, prior to Obamacare, you couldn't charge people of different ages or different health statuses or different genders different rates for insurance. So the insurance market had already been destroyed in New York. Obamacare bailed out New York by creating the mandates and the subsidies that got more people into the market. So New York's sort of a a special case, but say Texas, where I live. Texas premiums have shot up dramatically because we didn't have all those Obamacare-like regulations in our state before uh, the law, and now we do, and so premiums have more than doubled for most people. But so, but so in a state like Texas, how, how different is something you get off the exchange versus you know, having uh, you know, I don't know, one of the big Blue Cross Blue Shield or United or whatever the biggest uh, health care providers are? I mean, how different are, are you? What, the benefits of the plans differ by a lot, or are they actually somewhat comparable? Yeah, so, I mean, it's often Blue Cross and United, those kinds of companies have been offering plans on the exchanges. United has pulled out, but it's Blue Cross that's, that's still in. But the way to ask the question, I think the question you're trying to ask, Buck, is what were plans like before Obamacare and what are they like now? Yeah. And the, the biggest differences are, one, the premiums are a lot higher. Two, the deductibles are higher, so the insurance doesn't really kick in until you've already spent $6,000, $8,000, whereas before it might have been 3000 or 2000 And uh, your choice of doctors and hospitals is much narrower. So uh, in, in the old plan that was cheaper, you had a broader choice of which doctors were, uh, were part of your network, which were covered by your insurance. Today, that might be a much smaller handful who take a, a, you know, a low reimbursement rate to, to be involved in that insurance plan. So a lot less choice, a lot higher deductibles, a lot higher premiums. And the expansion of Medicaid, by the way, and all of that that's yep. happening, how, how has that been relative to what we were told it would be uh, now that we've had some years of Obamacare rolled out? I mean, and also, is this something that Trump is going to be able or, or could theoretically address? Yeah, so uh, the Medicaid expansion in the states that have, uh, have expanded Medicaid under Obamacare, the costs have been a lot higher in most cases than they were expecting. So there are all these 
kind of left-wing think tanks who put out these rosy scenario reports that said if, say, Indiana expands Medicaid uh, or Arkansas expands Medicaid, uh, then you're going to save a lot of money and you're going to get all these free federal dollars, quote-unquote, from, uh, from the rest of the country coming into your state. Well, yes, there are a lot of federal dollars coming to your state, but the state itself has to spend way more than it expected. And in most cases, these Medicaid expansions are over budget. And by the way, more, most importantly of all, they're spending all this money on Medicaid, but all the research shows that having Medicaid is no better than having no insurance at all in terms of whether it makes you actually healthy or not, in terms of living longer, in terms of a lower rate of heart attacks, local lower cholesterol, diabetes, things like that. Medicaid doesn't actually help you because so many doctors don't take Medicaid that if you have this card that says you have Medicaid, then it doesn't actually matter in terms of getting uh, access to the coverage that you need in a lot of cases. What are the most, what's the most important thing that a Trump presidency could do within the first, let's call it, uh, well, everyone talks about the first 100 days. That might be a bit fast. But what could be done in the first 100 days that would, that would really affect oh, yeah. everyone listening right now? I mean, that would make health care better, cheaper, more accessible. Well, okay, so the first thing that Trump can do is sign the repeal bill. The repeal bill will come pretty early on in a Trump administration. So sign the repeal bill, that's number one, because that will create a pathway to a better system. The second thing that Trump can do is there's a whole suite of executive orders and regulations and other things that the administration has put into force that have nothing to do with the letter of the law. They've gone above and beyond their actual uh, mandated authority. So what Trump can do pretty early on in his administration is, is uh, eliminate, roll back, wipe out, repeal those executive orders. He repeals those executive orders, and that will do, like, what are some of the yeah. ones we're talking well, about? So, so some, some of those executive orders will, uh, or the regulatory reforms can have some modest effect on reducing the cost of health care and health insurance for a lot of people. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far as to say he's going to be able to, with a stroke of a pen, save the health care system. He can't do that. But he can make a difference, you know, on the, on the margins through getting rid of those executive orders that Obama signed. But most importantly, he can sign that repeal bill and help lead the process for a much better health care system over the future. Because as that happens, the health insurance industry, the health care industry will start to respond to that and try to keep costs down and make health care more affordable for more people. Ovik Roy is Forbes's opinion editor. You can read his latest on Forbes.com. Also follow him on Twitter. Ovik, great to have you, sir. Thanks for calling in. Hey, thanks, Buck. Uh, 888-900-3393. We've got some spots open, team, if you want to call in and chat. Other than that, I'll be back after the break. The Buck Sexton Show. Discover more at theblaze.com slash radio. The Blaze Radio Network. show okay this this is pretty fascinating although i'm not sure it's it's accurate um but i just wanted to share it it's linked on drudge right now and it's from the nikkei asian review that apple in just to be prepared in case 
uh, Apple some months ago started looking at the possibility of moving production of the iPhone to America. Uh, this is this, look. I find this. I should say hard to believe, but I'm skeptical because most analysis has shown, uh, or the analysis I've previously seen, I should say, uh, shows that an iPhone made in America would cost between two and three thousand dollars, and right now it retails for about six hundred and fifty bucks. Cost two hundred twenty-five dollars for Apple to make an iPhone seven with a thirty-two gigabit memory. Um, I will say that I've become so dependent on my iPhone that I sort of get iPhone panic if it doesn't work or if it freezes or something. I feel like all of a sudden I'm in the middle of the ocean without any food or water and nobody knows I'm there. And, you know, this is just the world we live in now, which probably means that I should spend less time on my iPhone. Uh, But they're saying that there are sources with connections into Foxconn claiming that iPhones could one day be carrying made in America labels. And that Foxconn, which is a, the huge, uh, the huge manufacturer of uh, of, I- of iPhones, has been at least considering the costs of moving some of its iPhone production onto U.S. soil. This is all in response to a Trump election, which a Trump electoral victory, which many people, I guess, didn't think would happen, but looks like uh, they thought it might happen, and they prepared for it. Um, so here's what the quote, the quote of the piece is. Apple asked both Foxconn and Pegatron, the two iPhone assemblers, in June to look into making iPhones in the U.S. Foxconn complied, while Pegatron declined to formulate such a plan due to cost concerns. Foxconn, which is kind of famous for being a, a place where the iPhone is made very by people who are paid very little in China. And it's also, I believe, where they have this sort of campus and it's all... The Chinese industrial park is set up in such a way that the uh, raw materials are nearby and it's all sort of state mandated, state run stuff going on to get the raw materials there and to create this ecosystem, all inclusive ecosystem for the building of iPhones. And there are these nets around some of the buildings because people were committing suicide because they were working so hard. But the money they make is actually much better than the money they would otherwise make. So there's some complexity there on, on the economic and human cost of all this. But. Bottom line here, that's always been one of the things you point to, the mo- one of the most successful companies in the United States. I mean, I think you could argue it's really the most successful, Apple. I mean, it's changed the world we live in, uh, creates its products in China. If some of those iPhones get moved to the United States because of what Trump does, uh, that's that's going to get a lot of uh, that's going to get a lot of people paying notice. I think I don't know if it's going to happen to me. It seems like it's probably still going to be cost prohibitive. Um, because of a whole bunch of things. But remember, it's cost prohibitive based on the old regulatory regime, the old way of uh, the old trade agreements that we have. Maybe some of that changes. You know, Maybe we get rid of some of the sort of union, what, prevailing wage laws and the National Labor Relations Board isn't going to be able to just throw its muscle around quite the same way. I mean, things might change that change the analysis of the cost that bring it back here. Look, this piece to me it's from kind of a sketchy news source and uh, at least not one that i know well but just putting it out there just putting it out there uh we're gonna hit into some national security now in our three teams so strap in back in a few you're listening to buck sexton on the blaze radio network
and spreading freedom across the nation. This is The Buck Sexton Show. Team, welcome to Hour 3. Time for a Buck Brief. You are entering the Blaze Threat Ops Center. This is a secure space. All outside comms are down. Prepare to receive the Buck Brief. Joined by uh, Michael Pregent. He's an adjunct fellow at the Hudson Institute. He was just recently in Iraq checking out for himself what's going on there on the front lines. Michael, great to have you back. Hey, thanks, Buck. Thanks for having me. Uh, so first, let's let's talk a bit about Mosul, and then we'll get into Trump and counterterrorism policy. What's what's happening right now in, in the fight to take back the largest city to have ever fallen under ISIS's sway? What are the updates you can give us? Well, the, this is the first time that uh, a city's being taken back without the the help of U.S. artillery and airstrikes. What I mean by that is is the closer the Iraqi forces get to the center of Mosul the less likely they are to receive U.S. air support and artillery support because of the civilian population in Mosul. So that's why the counterterrorism forces are having to slow down a little bit. These are the same guys who have been fighting for two years. The, the counterterrorism service, the Golden Brigade, the Golden Divisions, well, the Golden Brigades from the Golden Division are, are exhausted. A lot of these guys are fighting with injuries that they received from Ramadi and from Fallujah. You got you have bandaged counterterrorism guys going into Mosul, and their wounds are from two battles ago. These guys are exhausted. Um, they're they're he- meeting heavy resistance as they move on the neighborhoods of eastern Mosul, and they haven't even started west Mosul yet. That's going to be the big fight. What I'm looking at now is I'm looking at the range of Shia militia artillery and rockets, and I'm trying to plot those locations because. What they're likely to do is compensate for the lack of U.S. air support and artillery, and they don't care if they cause civilian deaths. And some reports we're getting out of Mosul already is that Sunnis are looking at the security forces as they move into Mosul as an invading force and not necessarily a liberating force. If that perception continues, we're likely to see Sunni military males unaffiliated with ISIS take up arms against, against what they see as an invading force. Now, we also have seen uh, reports of mass graves, and there are reports from the over 50,000 who have fled the city saying essentially there are mass executions that have been going on for some time just to inst- instill a, a complete state of fear in the civilian population in Mosul. That's, that has been going on, and we're now seeing evidence of that. Yeah, and that pretty much stems from the reports that civilians in Mosul were providing intelligence to uh, the Iraqi security forces allowing the U.S. to conduct precision strikes against ISIS. So if I was a military guy, I, I mean, there's, it, it's in twofold. You want ISIS to be paranoid. You want ISIS to, to question its its uh, its followership, but you do not want them to exact a price on the civilian population. So some of those reports that you hear often from the Iraqi security forces probably should be uh, kept, you know, maybe a gag order put in place so that civilians aren't aren't killed because of this. It's an intimidation tactic to get the civilians not to work with the Iraqi security forces. Have we had any updates on uh, what's going on with some of these surrounding cities like uh, Talafer and other places that seem to have been much more infiltrated 
by ISIS than had been that was previously reported or at least was widely reported. Uh, where they're securing all these outlying towns, they are happy to be liberated. They are. What what's the general consensus from the populations that live there? Well, a lot of the populations had already fled these towns, so there are some civilians there. There, there are, are not as many as would be if the cities were actually not controlled by ISIS. So the feeling is, why did it take you so long to come to our aid? Think about this. They've been under ISIS siege for two and a half years. Why did it take so long for, the, for their central government to care enough to actually do something about it? So there's that. But then there's also the, the desperation of, of wanting to be fed and wanting to be sheltered. So there's, there's that as well. So the most important thing now is, is, is for the U.S. to somehow try to regain trust that, it, that the U.S. had, but more importantly, um, have that trust rebuilt with Baghdad. And that's, that's something that nobody's even focused on yet, and that's one of the, one of the biggest problems because that will just simply lead to resetting the conditions. So we're two months into this fight now for Mosul, and they have not yet, Iraqi forces have not yet even completely sealed off the city and are really just entering the city proper. Isn't that right? Yeah, you have two two forces. I just talked to somebody who just came back from Baghdad and was talking about the Iraqi security forces. And this is somebody who is pro-Iraqi security force. And he was telling me about the 15th Iraqi Army Division. It's from Baghdad. Uh, the counterterrorism service is, is decimated. And because the closer they get into the city center, the less likely they are to receive U.S. support because we will not be part of indiscriminate targeting of, uh, of civilian uh, civilians in Mosul. So... The 15th Iraqi Army Division is from Baghdad. And what we know about the Iraqi Army, the further it gets away from where people are from, the less likely they are willing to die, willing to fight. So you're not likely to see a lot of success once the uh, CTS and the 15th don't actually uh, retake territory like they planned. Now, then again, you have the 9th Iraqi Army Division, which is an armored armored division. The tanks, we see a lot of these tanks, they, they can't drive in these neighborhoods because the streets are too narrow. So that's what we got to watch. That's what we got to watch. These tanks are going to be susceptible to anti-tank fire from ISIS, and they're not going to be able to receive U.S. air cover. So that's what we're looking at. That's why Iraqi commanders are saying this may take anywhere from three to six months, and some even saying ten months. Ten months, wow. The Kurds have seized a number of areas, uh, including towns outlying uh, on the outskirts and, and around Mosul. Uh, and elsewhere, are there tensions rising just because of the the Kurdish presence in some of these newly liberated from ISIS areas, or is everyone willing to at least wait uh, wait to complain about that until they've actually got ISIS out of Mosul? Well, they, they tend to trust the Kurds more because the Kurds have a heavier U.S. Uh, uh, advisory uh, role. I mean, there are more U.S. advisors with the Peshmerga than there are with the Iraqi army. And the Kurds have promised not to go into Mosul, and they really don't have any reason to go into Mosul. At this point, uh, the Kurds the Kurds are being able to liberate these cities, and because there's a lot of cameras with the Peshmerga as they do this, you're seeing the civilian population treated very well. And they also know that the, the Peshmerga are heavily tied to the U.S., so there's more trust there. Um, the, the real issue is the direction in which the refugee flow will go. It's not going to go towards offer because that's where the Shia militias are heading to, and it's not going to go towards the Iraqi army because of the lack of trust. One of the biggest problems I have is watching Fox, CNN, and BBC cover this war and then actually say this. They're separating the women and children from the men. The men are going over here to be vetted at ISIS, that the Iraqis have a database who ISIS 
you know who you know which males are part of ISIS but that's that's the part that concerns me because the Iraqis are deciding who's part of ISIS and in the past we've seen Sunni military males led away and a lot of times you never see them again and that's what what concerns me and that's what should concern the UN as well switching gears for a second here Michael you uh, gave an interview or you're quoted here in uh, what is this voice of America news there's this notion that uh, Terror groups are are giddy over Donald Trump's election. You take issue with that. Tell us why. Well, I mean, if I was a terrorist leader, and Buck, you're a former intel guy, if you were a terrorist leader, you wouldn't be as afraid of a Hillary Clinton administration as you would be with a Trump administration with former JSOC guys in it. I mean, Flynn's going to be part of this in some way. And Flynn is a targeteer. And Flynn, uh, with JSOC, helped decimate uh, al-Qaeda leadership. So if I was an ISIS commander, I would be concerned about a Trump administration that has said we are going to decimate ISIS. What I said in the piece is that our special operators and intel guys are, are going to be uh, supported. Uh, this this counterterrorism effort is going to be accelerated. They're going to be empowered to succeed. One of the biggest criticisms I have of the Obama administration's ISIS policy was the ability of ISIS to move around during the daytime without being punished by U.S. airstrikes. Uh, they shouldn't be allowed to reposition forces during the daytime, but that's that's a standard with Democrat presidents. They do not want to see a U.S. aircraft down in the daytime uh, because they don't want to deal with the public reaction to a U.S. fighter going down. Uh, we, we not only own the night, we also own the daytime, so this counterterrorism policy will be accelerated. And on Iran and dealing with Iran, I see here in the piece you say that Trump's tougher stance dealing with the Iranians and the Iranian nuclear deal, that could have dividends even for the counterterrorism fight against jihadists. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the biggest motivator for recruitment is, is the U.S. tilt towards Iran in Syria, the U.S. tilt toward the Russian and, and Assad position. Trump doesn't have to kill the deal. This is how flawed this deal is. He simply has to enforce existing sanctions on U.N. Security Council resolutions and simply enforce the JCPOA, the Iran deal. If he simply enforces it, Iran will call it cheating and Iran will walk away. If he denies Iran access to the U.S. banking system, Iran walks away. When President Trump sees the secret side deals that nobody else has seen and says, no, we're not going to do these, such as we're going to pro provide a, a cyber security uh, defense for Iran's nuclear program, and he says no to those things, Iran will walk away. Iran will kill this deal if it's actually enforced. All right. Michael Pregent is an adjunct fellow at the Hudson Institute. Follow him on Twitter at MPPregent, P-R-E-G-E-N-T, and also at Vets Against the Deal. Mike, great to have you. Um, I know you're probably heading overseas again soon. Let us know. We want to have you back. All right. Thanks, Buck. I appreciate it. All right, man. Take, uh, take care. Uh, well, no, actually... Sponsor this half hour, Super Beets. Beets are a nutrition gold mine, my friends. They have dietary nitrates, which convert to nitric oxide in the body. And that is the secret to how they work for you. Nitric oxide can help boost circulation and maintain healthy blood pressure levels. So how do you get this nitric oxide? Well, it's in beets, and you can get the benefits of three whole beets in one teaspoon of Super Beets, and you get no beet taste. Super Beets is better than regular beets and beet juice because they are specially grown. They are non-GMO, and they are protected by a light drying process, which is also the secret to how good it tastes. This stuff does taste really good, I can tell you. 
Uh, both collegiate and pro football teams and Olympic athletes use it to boost their performance. So I feel confident offering this to you because I'm taking my Super Beats and I think they are fantastic. And it gives me energy and it's and right away you'll feel the boost. So uh, call 800-311-4367 or go to teambuckbeats.com. Get a 30-day supply free. It comes with your first order. It is backed by a money-back guarantee. Also receive a free book, Beat the Odds, and free shipping on your entire order. You'll love the results you feel with your first free canister, guaranteed, or your money back. That number is 800-311-4367, 800-311-4367, or go to teambuckbeats.com, B-E-E-T-S. Here. Buck Sexton, dispensing the truth. On the Blaze Radio Network. Is the Buck Sexton Show. Gotta love the various excuses that the Democrats have come up with for why they lost this last election. There's, of course, the main one is it's all racism. Uh, and I, I kind of, part of me hopes they continue with that because it didn't work against Trump. I, I don't think that this is going to be the winning strategy for uh, winning hearts and minds that, Demo- that the left believes it is. Although maybe they figure that, you know, persistence is the key, as a friend of mine used to say about all things. He's like, persistence. It's just all persistence. That was his, that was his theory, which sounds overly simplistic. Then you think more about it. You're like, well, persistence does work on a lot of stuff. Um, but one of the, the stories, really one of the memes that's out there is that fake news, actual fake news stories in this last election cycle were more important than real news. Um. Not a reference to the wonderful panel TV show I was on on The Blaze for about two years. Uh, May real news rest in peace. Uh, but actual news was uh, not as widely not as widely read, did not receive the same amount of clicks as fake news, according to this BuzzFeed article. And it's fascinating because, you know, they, they get you with this headline. And I've always said that it's I, I think it's very hard to build a serious news brand after you've started out by making the most viral and shareable uh, cute cat videos, which I know is a is a slight that BuzzFeed uh, sort of laughs off because it's made a lot of money and it's a huge website and all that. But I still think that that's a that's a brand issue for them, and and continues to be. But here's what they say about this: It's in the final three uh, about fake news versus real news. In the final three months of the U.S. presidential campaign, the top performing fake election store uh, election news stories on Facebook generated more engagement than the top stories from major news outlets such as the New York Times, Washington Post, Huffington Post, NBC News, and others, according to a BuzzFeed News analysis. During these critical months of the campaign, 20 top-performing false election stories from hoax sites and hyperpartisan blogs generated 8.7 million shares, reactions, and comments on Facebook. Within the same period, the 20 best-performing election stories from 19 major news websites generated 7.3 million shares, reactions, and comments on Facebook. Uh, okay, so let's take a look at this for a second. First of all, if, uh, interactivity on Facebook is not the equivalent of how much of an impact a story has. Uh, that's not true. 
a lot of times you'll see that the main news story on a site will not be necessarily the story that has the most comments, for example. And what's shareable and what's commented on is not necessarily what has the biggest you know, news impact of the day by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, lots of stuff goes viral that's – unfortunately, lots of stuff goes viral that's worthless, even if it's true. And so this is just – this is a completely haphazard analysis. But you see it – and you, you pull this apart. You begin to pull at the threads on this, and, and it, all, it all just uh, unravels. But when – when you when you see this story, you should think to yourself, oh, here's another. Although, wait, before I say that, let me just give the top five fake election stories by Facebook engagement were Pope Fred. These are just kind of funny. So these are fake news stories that got a lot of traction on Facebook. Pope Francis shocks world endorses Donald Trump for president. <laughs> Come on, guys, that's fake. Uh, WikiLeaks confirms Hillary sold weapons to ISIS, then drops another bombshell. Uh, it's over. Hillary's ISIS email just leaked, and it's worse than anyone could have imagined. Just read the law. Hillary is disqualified from holding any federal office. An FBI agent suspected in Hillary email leaks found dead in apparent murder-suicide. So uh, those, are the top, those are the top five fake news stories. Here are the top five mainstream election stories. Stop pretending you don't know why people hate Hillary Clinton. This is from the Huffington Post. That's not a news story. That's an, that's an opinion editorial pretending to be a news story. That, but that's not a news story. So I think this is very interesting. The, the whole premise here is that hard news is crowded out and overshadowed by literally fake news. But what they really mean is, you know, some other person's shareable crap did better than the shareable crap that we like that's not even necessarily news. Um, you know, Melania's Melania Trump's girl on girl photo from racy shoot revealed uh, this is a real new. I mean, these are like real news stories. This is what they're citing as real news stories over at BuzzFeed. I, I'm I think they have, uh, uh, you know, there's some complexity here that they're missing. Um, Trump's history of corruption is mind boggling. So why is Clinton supposedly the corrupt one? That's a Washington Post story. That's not. Uh, excuse me, that, that, that's not a news story. That's an editorial, just based on the headline. So this whole premise of hard news versus fake news, actual news versus fake news is, no, this, they're saying that you know fake shareable crap did better than our, uh, our you know, opinion shareable crap, and we're upset about it, or the opinion that we like. But see, this all falls under that broad umbrella again of, see, Trump won because of fake news, because idiots believe fake news. And so they voted for Trump, who's really a fake candidate. Just another it just gives them another excuse. And that's how you that's how you get to a level of analysis like this that is so sloppy and so bereft of real thought and analysis, but is pumped out. And this has gotten, you know, a couple hundred thousand views on BuzzFeed and other people are talking about it. So. You know, just just watch as they unveil one narrative after another. What they won't ever settle on is Hillary was wildly corrupt, a bad candidate, unlikable, entitled to an office that she never should have even been running for in the first place. And Democrats have sold out working class whites in favor of multiculturalism and illegal immigration. That's it. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network.
You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show. I know it's late in the show, team, but it's never too late for spy time. Agent, you are joining a clandestine meeting in progress. You will now be read into sensitive programs in real time. Do not communicate this information with any other assets in the field. This is spy time. John Schindler, columnist for the New York Observer for National Security and at 20 Committee on Twitter, joins now. We've got a couple of columns to discuss with him. John, great to have you, sir. Great to be here, as always, Buck. Let's do let's deal with the news first, then we'll get into a spy mystery that continues through the decades here. But James Clapper, the DNI, has stepped down. What say you about this? Yeah, Clapper's been our uh, spy master now for more than six years, longer than anyone else has ever had the job, and he'd been planning on stepping down for a while. And he's getting out of the way so that uh, President-elect Trump can have his own director of national intelligence, uh, which means we're going to have some very interesting decision-making coming up, given all the chaos we're seeing over in the Trump transition team about who's going to be in which job. So this is going to matter a lot because Trump... You know, Trump has really no national security or intelligence experience, so who he chooses to be a spy master is going to be a big deal. I think you're perhaps underestimating all the, the secrecy and shenanigans behind the scenes of The Apprentice. But nonetheless, <laughs> yes, you are correct that there is no actual spy craft. There's no yes. trade craft involved in Trump's, uh, Trump's background. Not so much. Yeah, not, not so much. much. Um, just your assessment of, of uh the guy who's really considered the DNI because it hasn't been around very long yeah. and he's been in, been in it for a long time. Think he's done a good job. I, I think on the whole, yes, that's a really tough job. You know, the intelligence community has sixteen agencies that don't always play well together. Um, Clapper, of course, is a career intel guy. Air Force, he headed up Defense Intelligence Agency, then the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. He's been around. I mean, I'm not an unreserved fan. There have been a lot of mistakes. I think the Snowden debacle should have resulted in a lot more cleaning house in the intelligence community than it did. I think it's his, his fault. But I also think he's gotten some blame unfairly, particularly from the left, about some of the stone revelations, the famous incident in March of 2013 when Ron Wyden, uh, the, the senator from uh, Oregon, a Democrat, you know, basically set up Clapper, uh, asked him a classified question in, in an unclassified uh, congressional hearing. And that, of course, got the left in a lather, claimed Clapper was lying about surveillance of Americans. And, you know, his, his reputation took took it on the chin for that, and I think kind of unfairly. So, you know, on the whole, I, I think that the, the balance speaks to Clapper's favor, given that being the DNI is a, a bureaucratically really tough job. Now, the people that are in line to replace him, what's the good, the bad, and the ugly of that? Well, I, I think the bad news is Mike Rogers, who was the chair, previous chair of the House Intelligence Committee, a former FBI agent who'd been on Team Trump for months, just left Team Trump and what's alleged to be a purge of uh, people who were close to former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, and Rogers was was one of those. And that's really bad because Rogers uh, knows the intelligence business. He has a lot of credibility with intelligence communities, liked and he's trusted. So that was the guy everyone kind of wanted, and he's gone now. There are rumors that uh, Devin Nunez, who's his uh, Rogers replacement as the uh, chair of the House Intelligence Committee, he's a Republican from California, could be the next DNI. That, I mean, that wouldn't be a bad choice. That would be acceptable. Nunez knows the community quite well. Uh, the one no one wants in the IC, I shouldn't say no one. Uh, the one that is not favored by most intelligence professionals, of course, is Mike Flynn, who has been the national security guru for 
candidate Trump, now President-elect Trump, for a long time. And Flynn was fired as the head of DIA a couple of years back. Um, Flynn makes this out to be this was he was trying to warn President Obama about the rise of ISIS, and, I, and President Obama didn't listen. And although there is truth in that, the real reason Flynn was fired was because he was incompetent and he really did a bad job of running DIA. So the last thing you want to do is make, give him an even bigger venue when he couldn't manage DIA well, to say nothing of the fact that Flynn has weird ties to Russia and is just in general kind of an abrasive guy who doesn't doesn't play well with others. I, I think the key thing in DNI is you have to have some diplomacy intact because you're dealing with agencies like CIA, NSA, others that are actually quite powerful agencies in their own right. And there's a lot of cat herding there, and I don't think Flynn's a good choice to herd, herd the pussycats, frankly. Um, let me ask you, uh, who would you put? Yeah. I mean, if, I, if, if you were – if Trump brought you into the transition team, let's just assume he did – and decided to give yeah. you carte blanche. Yeah. You could put anybody in the DNI post, CIA director post, and maybe DIA just for giggles or NSA. Uh, who would come to mind? Well, certainly at the top, there's a, a small group of people. Uh, one of the ones who'd be really on the short list would be Chris Inglis, who's uh, a uh, recently retired as the deputy director of NSA, the top civilian at NSA, and also he's a retired one-star general in the Air National Guard whom I think very highly of a lot of the community does for a big level position. You know, there's been a lot of rumors about who would take over CIA. I think, you know, putting an outsider in a place like CIA can be interesting, but a total outsider is probably not good. I mean, I'd like someone who maybe was in the business a long time ago, has been out in the world for a while, uh, and and is ready to move back. Um, you know, I've, I, I've got a little uh, magic list together. I won't divulge all of them. But I think what you want for any of these top intelligence jobs is someone who does know the intelligence business but isn't beholden to any particular agency and is willing to speak the truth to power per the Great Beltway cliche. So it's that paradox. If you want people who, are, who know the business but aren't held captive by it and won't have all their, all their buddies from their previous service come back and ask them for favors. Uh, but you, you can't have a total neophyte in, in any of these jobs. That's just a recipe for disaster. And what Trump better not do – is appoint cronies who are loyal to him who don't know anything about the intel business because th- that would be a terrible mistake. I mean, Brennan, you know, Brennan's got to go out at CIA at some point. He's too much of a of an Obama crony, frankly. But let's not re- re- let's not replace him with someone else's crony. Okay, so we've got some decent options in the mix. Uh, some yeah. people are going to have to go. Yeah. Uh, are there any, people have thrown out some names as well that I've heard in the last. I just wanted to McChrystal, Mattis, either of those guys strike yeah. you as wise choices for a Matt, senior role? Either would be fine. I think Mattis would would be my leading choice because of his enormous integrity and tremendous cachet. Uh, McChrystal's not far behind. These are very smart, accomplished military leaders. Mattis is the best of his generation. Um, you're not going to do much better than a Mattis if he's willing to take the job. I mean, that that's always the case. I mean, a DNI like Mattis would be superb, in, in my opinion. Is that possible? I don't know. That's a good question. I, you know, he, he doesn't suffer fools lightly and would probably tell President Trump where to put it if he didn't agree with them. And I'm, I'm not sure I'm not sure that that's going to fly uh, in, in, in the incoming administration. We will. We will have to see. Um, all right. Now, let's uh, let's move to this uh, situation that you describe in your piece. By the way, there's two pieces up on Observer.com right now that John has written. One is James Clapper, America's top spy master, steps down. Here's what happens next. We just talked a bit about that. You can get more at Observer.com. But then and you're going to have to walk me through this one. Who murdered Olaf Palme over 30 years? Oh, after no, Sweden? No. Yeah, over 30 years after yeah. Sweden's prime minister was gunned down on the streets of Stockholm, the mystery may finally be solved. 
John, I'm willing to bet most people don't even know about this. I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't even know about this one. So what yeah, happened okay. in Sweden 30 years ago? Yeah, February 28th, uh, 1986. Uh, Olaf Palma, the prime, longtime prime minister of Sweden, who was sort of a globally famous guy for his human rights crusading, was uh, gunned down, shot in the back by an unknown gunman while walking without a bodyguard down the streets of Stockholm, where that kind of stuff just doesn't happen a whole lot. And for 30 years, there have been rumors about who did it. Uh, one guy was arrested. He was kind of mentally dubious. And his conviction was overturned because there really wasn't any evidence connecting him to the crime. So for 30 years, there's been a huge spy mystery about – it's been suspected it was an intelligence service. But t- tell people, what are some of the different theories? I was reading in your piece. I mean, these, oh, this, this is wild. like everything. This is grassy knoll and then some. everything. It's it, it's five times the grassy knoll, and this is a it's a professional hobby over in Sweden and Scandinavia guessing who did it. One possibility is uh, South Africa back in the 80s was ruled by the apartheid government, the apartheid regime, which really hated Palma for his activism against apartheid. They've always been a possible suspect. Believe it or not, Kurdish terrorists have always been a possible suspect. There have been suspects of linking, uh, possibly organized crime. Uh, the leading one, I think, although once again we don't, we just don't have conclusive proof for any of them, is that Yugoslav intelligence uh, took out Palma uh, in uh, one of their many assassinations they conducted in the West during the Cold War. Uh, the most people don't know this: Yugoslavia's uh, spies killed more than 100 people in the West during the Cold War. Uh, a lot of assassinations, including a dozen in the United States, and a top former official of. Uh, of Yugoslav intelligence, uh, who was in fact a convicted assassin himself, so he, he knows the business, uh, has said it was his service that did it, and even named a gunman uh, who's still alive uh, five years ago. So there's, you know, there, there are things to work with here. This is not a, a totally closed case, and the Swedish government just this week announced that they are re- reopening. It was never closed formally, but not much has happened in the investigation in many, many years. They've handed the case over to a, a very, very forceful, hungry prosecutor, and for the first time in decades, there's a real chance that we will get to know who murdered Sweden's prime minister and got away with it. All right. Well, we'll have to see how that all shakes out. It's, John, it's, uh, it's, it's a pretty weird story. <laughs> yeah, no, people should check it out. I mean, it just, just to see all the theories. And, and there was a guy in prison, right? A guy in a year. Yeah. And then they said, oops, sorry, wrong guy. And then yeah, Sweden gave him 50K he and he just, blew it on booze and yeah. ladies and whatever. On weed and booze. Gotta love it, huh? I mean, I mean, if you've been wrong, wrongfully convicted of uh, shooting the country's prime minister, I, I hope they gave you something, right? You know, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very strange story. It, and check it out. <laughs> All right, yeah, you, you, you really will want to see the details. Who murdered? Who murdered Olaf uh, Palma? This is on Observer dot com. Yeah. It's John Schindler's latest. Our buddy from the formerly from the NSA, John Schindler at the New York Observer. Follow him at Twenty Community, uh, Mr. Schindler. Great to have you. Have you back soon? A pleasure as always. Uh, team eight 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 nine zero zero three three nine three. If you want to chat before we close up the hut for the day, back in just a few minutes. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. We've got a call from Emily in West Virginia. Emily, Shield Tie, what's up? What's up, Buck? Thank you for letting me phone in. Um, love Thank your you show. For I was calling <laughs> because earlier in the segment you had talked about all these people not feeling safe. 
I believe that it's a side effect from all these people that are dependent on the government. They forget that they have personal responsibility for their own freedom. And because of that, they need the government to help them feel safe, to provide for them. And it's really sad. Yeah, I mean, these whole safe space phenomenon, I say this all the time, that campuses are laboratories for lunacy, meaning that it sort of starts there and then like the the virus from, you know, 28 days later, it spreads quickly into the rest of the population. And this idea that things you don't like make you unsafe, uh, that's that's crazy. Uh, th- that's just bizarre. And, I mean, that could shut down all speech of any kind, which is why they like it so much. It's a, it is a constant and absolute heckler's veto over ideas that an, any individual finds unpopular. Oh, you're threatening me. No, the, I mean, threatening somebody is like, I'm going to punch you in the face. That's a threat. Uh, I think right. we should have lower marginal sure. tax rates is not a threat. I think that men have certain uh, special parts and ladies have different special parts. That's not a threat. That's just a statement of fact. Just common sense. Yeah. I think it's just common sense. You have to be able to take care of yourselves. You have to be able to deal with somebody who doesn't like your opinion and converse with them maturely instead of crying to somebody to protect you. Uh, look, I I think that if nothing else... The Trump era opens up dialogue by making people more that by, by offending more people will have more discussion. That's probably a good thing. Uh, thank you, Emily, for calling in from West Virginia. You know, comedians used to think that that was their job. Now that now their job is to is to weep for Hillary Clinton. It used to be to push boundaries and push buttons. And then the rest of us would benefit from that because, you know, there, there was this constant sort of testing and retesting of acceptable speech and showing us that, you know, you can make an offensive joke, actually, and not, and no one, you know, no one catches on fire. It's okay. So, uh, quick thing: New York Post uh, piece here. Social media is making you a bad friend. It talks about how we interact now in the sort of social media space, and you know, somebody gets engaged, you click like, you know, all this sort of stuff. I just wonder what, where do emojis fall on the scale of like adult interaction now? Are emojis totally cool across the board? Like, can we all be using emojis all the time? Uh, is is it is or is that weird? I know some of you are probably like, I would never use emojis. Others of you are. I just want. I feel like I'm on the emoji dividing line. Like, I'm just people who are five years older than me don't emoji, and people that are five years younger than me are like, of course I emoji. It's so useful and expressive to use to to be you know putting them in your text messages. John, come on here for a second. Well, emojis, yes or no? Do you you know? You have you have a good date. I, do you do you uh, do you send the lady afterwards a little a little wink and a, and a thumbs up or something? I don't use emojis. I, I think that's a girl thing, isn't it? It's a girl thing. I don't, Man, know. I don't know. Was I just? We're gonna have am, to am, put, I be, am I being sexist? I, I don't. I don't. I don't, I don't know. Uh, neither here nor there. It's the Trump era, dude. <laughs> I leave it. I leave it up to the listeners. Uh, but let's let's put on. I want to throw on Facebook. I'll ask producer Amy to do this. A uh, you know, what do you think of emojis? Okay, if you're like over 35, okay, if you're under 35, okay for everyone, okay for no one, something like that. Uh, or, you know, okay for no one who's an adult. Uh, I'm kind of curious, you know? You know, can you, is it like, do some of you that are in your 40s and 50s and 60s who are listening, you know, do you send your wife, your husband, like little smoochy faces emojis or no? Is that, is that not cool? Uh, I, I don't know. I never really thought about it until recently. And I'm like, are emojis something that we should all be doing? Or is it selective? Is it only okay for comedy purposes? Like if you do something, if you use them in a funny way? I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying I use emojis. I'm not saying I send anybody smoochy emojis. I'm just 
just asking the guys. I'm just here asking questions. I'm just asking questions. That's what I do. You know, I, I, I subvert the dominant paradigm like my professor on his wall. Uh, all right, team. Uh, tomorrow's going to be Freestyle Friday. We're going to have some fun, go through a lot of stuff. Uh, please do join me. Um, if tonight you feel like using social media and maybe some emojis to tell a friend about the show, be like, yo, check this guy out, and you give the link to theblaze.com slash buck dash sexton, that would be amazing. As always, until tomorrow, my friends, shields high. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Oh,